Hello, and welcome to From Russia with News, a weekly news podcast brought to you by the Moscow Times. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Millions of citizens of Russia are united by the Olympic dream. I view the Russians as a far greater challenge that we have. President Putin, uh, he just said it's not Russia. A unique country, not bad, not bad at all. My name is Jonathan Brown, and I'm an editor in our newsroom here in Moscow. This week on the program, five years ago, the Kremlin hosted a hugely controversial referendum in Crimea, which ended in Russia's annexation of the peninsula from Ukraine. Vladimir Putin's popularity skyrocketed. His ties with Western leaders took a nosedive. He will go down into history as the uh, ruler of Russia who uh, brought Crimea back home. We'll speak with Elena Chernenko, deputy editor of the Kommersant newspaper about Crimea, Russia and the West five years on. And later, a Moscow Times investigation this week revealed how rich Russians dodge taxes and move court cases to a southern Russian region where their lawsuits are heard by friendly judges. Russia's legal system has essentially become a tool of powerful, wealthy people who use it as a way to get their court cases rubber-stamped. Moscow Times correspondent Evan Gershkovich will join us in the studio to talk about who's exploiting the loopholes and why. First up, five years ago on Saturday, Russian authorities orchestrated a referendum in the Crimean Peninsula posing residents with a simple question. Do you want to join the Russian Federation? Krim Over 95% backed the resolution in a ballot that was described variously by the US and the EU as illegal, rigged, and held at gunpoint. Joining us on the line is Elena Chernenko, deputy foreign editor at the Kommersant newspaper, to talk about the annexation five years on. Elena, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you for inviting me. So five years on, has Crimea been fully integrated into Russia, its its political system and infrastructure? I would say yes. We have seen lots of efforts from the Russian government uh, going into this uh, matter to integrate Crimea fully politically, economically, infrastructure, uh, socially. Um, we have even uh, seen this on, on a very small level, for example, in our newspaper in Kommersant. Crimea used before uh, 2014, of course, uh, to be a topic for, for my resort, the one that I'm working in, the foreign desk. But after uh, I was integrated into Russia um, in 2014, it became inner political matters. So um, now the guys who are writing inner politics are covering it mostly. That has happened on every level um, in Russia, starting with uh, local things like banks and uh, mobile connections, um, then to tourism, uh, and of course the bigger level where it comes to like electrical and energetic infrastructure, uh, to the political level. Uh, now we have seen last year the opening of the bridge to Crimea, which makes it much more accessible uh, for business, but also for common citizens. Uh, we have seen a big... Um, rise of uh, tourists from Russian mainland going to Crimea starting with 2014, but it was quite difficult in the first years now with the bridge working, it's going to be easier for them. So yes, I think it's basically fully, almost fully integrated now. In the years after the annexation, the Russian authorities enjoyed the Crimea consensus, which was basically sky-high approval ratings and a a kind of willingness among the Russian people to give the Kremlin the benefit of the doubt. Um, Has that sentiment held or are we seeing it it dip? 
Well, um, there has been lots and lots of emotions, of course, um, in the first year, especially in 2014, when Crimea became a part of Russia, there was this, uh, this feeling among the population that justice has happened because um, they have been told very much from, for example, state media, um, they were reminded of uh, what has happened in the middle of the last century when uh, Nikita Khrushchev uh, reassigned Crimea to Ukraine. So they were thinking that this was unjust. And now um, the slogan was back then that Crimea has come home. Um, and that was very much appealing back then. I think that um, I don't remember the, the, the exact numbers, but it was overwhelmingly uh, the emotion in the population that this was a good decision, a just decision. Um, right now, there is, of course, not as much talks about this um event, although we will see a lot of um, uh, things devoted to Crimea uh, uh, on the 18th and around this date, on the 18th of March. Um, but um, I have not seen the recent polls. I think they will come out uh, right on, on the day um, of the fifth year anniversary. Uh, but I would guess that most of the people still think that it was it was a good idea, it was just, and it, it's good that it happened. Maybe not as many as five years ago. Um, because this wave of big emotional uh, happiness is over, but still overwhelmingly, yes. The annexation did bring with it, a, uh, and has brought with it, a really trying period in Russia's relationship with the West. Um, the 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 EU and 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 the United States said about hitting Russia with some pretty hefty economic sanctions after 2014, and of course they've only added to those since. Is there any sign that the relationship might? improve or that those sanctions specifically re- related to Crimea could be could be lifted? Well, I've talked to many Western diplomats uh, um, in 2014, but also in the years that came after that. Um, and many of them would say um, on background, um, they didn't want to be quoted by name, but they said that if it was only for Crimea, um, it wouldn't have been all that bad uh, in the relations with uh, Russia and the West. Um, it's not like the EU or the US would have recognized this uh, integration of Crimea into Russia, but uh, there wouldn't be as hard sanctions as we see today. Uh, maybe the relationship would not be business as usual, but not as bad and catastrophic as today. So they said if if uh, it had stopped there, it wouldn't be all that bad. But it went on to Donbass. We have seen what has happened. Um, so right now there is this feeling that, uh, well, Crimea... I, I don't see any Western diplomats who really uh, sincerely say that anything can be done about Crimea now, like this, that this re- decision can be reversed. We have seen in the last month, I would say maybe in the last one year, uh, several efforts of uh, alternative decisions um, of uh, state leaders um, from the West coming up with some solutions. For example, we have seen a uh, proposal from the Czech president who said that maybe Russia could pay lots and lots of money to Ukraine to buy Crimea out and then solve this problem. So I would say that the sanctions won't go away. This is going to stay with us for a very long time. But also that um, uh, maybe there is a wish more from the Western side, but also a bit from Russia to kind of um, talk about this. Um, I have also heard... Um, about proposals from um, Western leaders, for example, to think about um, some other referendum or some decision together with uh, Moscow and Kiev. This doesn't sound very realistic, but at least um, there is this idea of let's talk about it. As a journalist based in Moscow, what's an example you see of how Russian and Western newspapers cover Crimea differently? 
Maybe I should have somewhere pointed out that for me personally, annexation is not the term that I would use, and we don't use it in the paper because we try to stick as to as a, a neutral term as possible. So we don't say annexation, which is very negative, but we also don't say uh, reunification or reintegration because that is um, something that would be overly positive. Hmm. Um, so we, for example, say uh, in in Russian that that's the term. So not annexation, uh, not воссоединение, but соединение. Или вхождение Крыма в состав России. So the, the joining of Crimea into, into Russia. Right. And that's um, also the term that I personally feel most comfortable with. Because, of course, I see all of the, of the criticism around the legitimacy of this decision and the way it was handled. Do you ever wonder whether Russian officials and, and, and Putin in particular asks himself whether or not it was worth worth it to a- a- annex Crimea? I mean, immediately after his 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 own approval ratings soared, but now five years on, they've they've dipped again to to the levels in and around two thousand and fourteen. I don't think he ever regretted it. I don't think that um, anybody in the Russian government um, really regrets this. Um, because, especially not Putin himself, um, he will go down into history as the uh, ruler of Russia who uh, brought Crimea back home. Um, this is uh, the, uh, the rhetoric, the narrative of the Russian government. It sticks very much um, with the Russian population. Um, as I said, they, they feel that, um, that this is something that should have happened a long time ago. Um, there has been the sentiment within the population here that Crimea always belonged to Russia, and uh, many people did not understand uh, the the government who did not really do anything about this in the 90s, in the beginning of 2000s. Although there were many Crimean politicians who were asking Moscow for help, um, but I don't think that Putin will regret it. I think uh, he is um, still he would still do the same if it had happened today. And we have seen many of his statements in the years after 2014, where he again and again said that this was a decision that had no alternative for him. Elena, thanks very much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you. Step one, fudge your tax returns. Step two, move your lawsuit to the south. Step three, sit back and watch the court rubber stamp your case. This week, the Moscow Times published an investigation into how Russian oligarchs are gaming the country's legal system by shifting their court cases to a southern Russian region where they are all but guaranteed a more sympathetic hearing. Joining us in the studio to tell us more is Moscow Times reporter Evan Gershkovich. Evan, good to have you back. It is good to be back. I miss the studio. Tell us first of all about the relationship between Igor Zuzin and Yelena Volkova. Uh, Essentially, the two met right when Zuzin was getting really really wealthy he was already he had billions of dollars and he was already married with two kids uh she was working in a nightclub in moscow as a waitress they meet and fall in love he buys her this massive house in a suburb outside of moscow where putin lives uh he buys her an apartment at kutuzovsky prospect which is one of the you know nicest parts of moscow and 15 years later they never you know zuzan never gets a divorce she never you know wants a marriage and they're living happily like this. He apparently, the way Volkova told me, he would go home at night to sleep with his family to keep up appearances with his kids. But he also had this essentially side family because the two of them ended up having a child. Uh, and so when they split up 15 years later uh, in 2017, the kid is at that point, I think, 
eight if he's 10 now. So, you know, he essentially had two families uh, going at the same time. And the relationship turned sour. It turned sour. Uh, It's hard to say exactly why, because I only have one side of the story talking to Volkova. She said that as their kid, Yegor, started growing up, getting older, she wanted a more present father figure. Uh, You know, in the few interviews that Zuzan has ever given, he essentially says his main hobby is his work. Uh, And she, you know, in interviews that we had, uh, she talked about how he was only really focused on his job. He would send them away to the Maldives to relax on the beach, to the Swiss Alps, to ski. And, you know, work was his number one love. And she wanted a real family for her kid who started asking questions. Sure. Then we get to June 2017 when uh, she alleges in a police report that her his security guard comes to her house, tosses all her things out, burns them. Then she goes to the apartment on Kutuzovki Prospect. She's locked out of there. And relationship over. So what happens when Volkova tries to get alimony essentially the way she retold it to me in the documents that i you know her lawyer gave me they amicably agree on alimony payments really quickly it's about two weeks later uh it's early july that they agree at a and a notary signs the agreement of fifty thousand rubles a month which is about 750 us dollars it's quite low considering that it's a percentage of 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 his of his worth or or of his income is that right and so volkova accepts fifty thousand rubles as alimony payment basically just wanting to get this done she realizes that it's really small considering this guy's an oligarch you know considering that he's worth hundreds of millions at this point he used to be worth billions but she had a bunch of money left in her bank account she attests that it's 33 million rubles which comes out to about uh five hundred thousand us dollars and so she figures in her words to me that, you know, I'll be able to support my kid. She soon finds out that she's blocked out of her bank account. This bank account is held in uh, Uglimilt Bank. Uh, that's shorthand in Russian for Coles and Metals Bank, which is the two, you know, commodities that Zuzan's selling on the market. And he, the bank is owned partially by him, two of his company's subsidiaries, and then a company equally divided between his wife and his kids. Uh, the bank says that, you know, they're checking the source of the money for, you know, in service of terrorism and, uh, laundering laws that seems quite suspicious. Anyway, she's soon blocked out of her account and she wants more money because in Russia, by law, alimony payments should be 25% of somebody's income. So she sues him expecting to get way more than 50,000 rubles in court. So how is it possible that 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 the that the numbers are crunched such that he's only having to pay 50,000 rubles a month? Right. So in court, uh, Zuzan's legal team argues that, you know, his company's been going through a hard time since 2008, uh, and he just hasn't been making much money. And so forget the claims about his net worth that we see in public, forget, you know, that he's the chairman of the board of the directors of this massive uh, international company. He's actually making no money. And the way they make that argument is they present tax filings for, uh, it was the full year of 2017, and then half of, uh, about half of 2018. Uh, The half of 2018, he is making an average of 225,000 rubles a month. That comes out to about $3,500. So we take 25% of that. That's about 50,000 rubles a month, and hence the alimony payments claim. He also, to sort of buttress his point, in 2017, he presents a form that uh, says he made 19,640 rubles for the entire year, which is 296 US dollars. He's worth, Forbes last year has him at uh, worth 500... 500 million US dollars. And he's made $296, according to his tax return for 2017. Okay, so explain the discrepancy between uh, how much he's, he's, he's claiming that he's making and how much he's, he's worth. 
Right. So when I went to talk to tax experts about this, the first answer I got immediately was, you know, people in Russia and in high positions and, you know, not just in high positions quite often. And as one expert said, there's millions of cases of this. You basically just have your uh, salary paid out to a subordinate. Uh, the subordinates dependent on you for their job, they're not going to say no. It doesn't really hurt them in any way. And for you, what this means is that in the case of a divorce or if law enforcement agencies become interested in, you know, any suspicious dealings, you just say, I have no money. Uh, one tax expert even said, even I do this. Uh, <laughs> and it was just kind of amazing to hear. He's, there's nothing that he goes, there's nothing to lie about. I mean, we just all do this. So that's one possible explanation. The second possible explanation is that the federal tax service uh, is sort of this unwieldy bureaucracy that has a tough time gathering all the relevant information. And so if you have dozens of sub- subsidiaries, like a company like Mitchell, which Susan runs, you essentially can take the risk of not filing, you know, for all your companies because the federal tax service will have a tough time getting that information together. They are fairly public in saying they're working on this. Uh, there's reforms underway. This isn't really a secret that they have trouble. Then the third possible explanation is that one would live off their dividends uh, paid out from their shares, and those dividends would go to an offshore company, hence keeping them off Russian tax books. In this case, uh, we do see just from public records that there is a good chunk of shares, dividends being paid out to a company in Cyprus that Susan's company fully owns, and he is a majority shareholder in the company, so it's not hard to fathom that potentially he's getting an income from Cyprus that is not actually making it into the Russian tax books, and that way he can you know claim in court that he really only needs to pay $750 an alimony payments per month. Per and, month. and where is this court case happening? So this is happening in Moscow. But what soon happens is Zuzin isn't happy just with paying um, you know, a meager amount of money in alimony payments. He wants back the $500,000 that's in Volkova's bank account that she was blocked out of. Uh, so she gets slapped in the beginning of 2018, so about half a year later, with a lawsuit uh, saying that the money that, as she understood, was for a stay-at-home mother and the, their kid was actually a loan. Hmm. Um, and she gets hit with this suit uh, 1,500 kilometers away in a small city called Novorossiysk in the Krasnodar region. Uh, Zuzan's never lived there. His business isn't there. She's never lived there. And it's you know, a bit surprising to get hit with a suit from there. How, how is it How is it possible that, that their disagreement ends up being heard in a court in Krasnodar? This is all the way in the south of Russia. Right. This is in the south. This is on the coast of the Black Sea. The courthouse is steps away. It's just not Moscow. It's a lot warmer, different setting. And the way you do this or the way this happens is that in Russia, court cases are heard uh, where a defendant is registered. The idea being that the defendant or Atvechik in, in Russian, you know, the person who has to answer, has to be able to answer. Uh, they have to come to the court and answer for, you know, whatever the guy, the person is suing them for. Uh, so you need a second defendant. You need a co-defendant. And you need that person to be registered in Novorossiysk, which Zuzin, as it happens, somehow finds. Uh, it's quite miraculous. Essentially, he presents a letter in court uh, that is about two paragraphs long. It's written from a, a guy uh, who doesn't explain how he knows Volkova. He doesn't know Zuzan. He just says, "In he says, Zuzan, I've heard that uh, Volkova owes you this sum of money. I will guarantee it. That's on, it. On Volkova's behalf. On Volkova's behalf, I will guarantee that she, ha- I will take on this responsibility along with her, and I will do this till December 31st, 2017. So he's now a co-defendant. He also owes this money. Uh, Zuzan sues in the next month. In Krasnodar. In Krasnodar. 
He wins the case a couple months later, which means Volkova owes him the $500,000. Now, the guy who writes the letter to Zuzan, he actually doesn't have to pay any of the money because he put an expiration date on his guarantee loan. So just like that, the case was shifted all the way away to a different court, rules in Zuzan's favor, and Volkova is just left owing $500,000. So not only did she not get access to this $500,000 that she thought would go to her child, she's now left owing it. So of 49 regions in Russia, why why Krasnodar? And it's not just an isolated case. Um, we've seen, well, in your in your story, we see that uh, this is a pattern that's repeated. Yeah, so the pattern of shifting cases there, not just from Moscow, but from places like Ufa and the U- Urals region, this is happening often over the past two years. And uh, lawyers I talked to who are based in Krasnodar and working there said that there are multiple such ongoing cases. Uh, I talk about another two that are current in this in the story uh then when i talked to lawyers about why exactly krasnodar uh you know it was sort of an immediate an immediate reaction like oh yeah that makes sense i mean this is a place where you know if russia's court systems overall appear to be gamed or in a certain sense that they're instruments of the powerful who use them to their advantage in krasnodar it's even more so and so one lawyer said, you know, it's been a meme. It's already a meme for Russian lawyers that if you're, you know, you're sued in Krasnodar, you basically don't have a chance. In all, how legal are these workarounds? And if they're not, then is there any chance that uh, the individuals employing them will be will be reeled in by the authorities? According to lawyers I spoke with, one gave me a, a nice quote where he says there's not a whiff of the law in any of these cases uh, because in all the court decisions, the judge doesn't explain why the case had to be moved. The judge doesn't explain why this person guaranteeing this debt, you know, how they know this person. Why can they be the grantor? Usually a grantor is, you know, a close relative, a close friend. Uh, Typically happens when you're, you know, you're going to get an apartment and, you know, the you need to prove that you can pay the rent money. And so your your parent usually would say, yeah, like I I will take on this uh, this person's debt if they can't pay this month. So it's on its face. It's quite outrageous that. A defendant would have to fly, you know, get on a three-hour flight to go, you know, answer for whatever legal responsibilities they have and not be explained why at all. It's not in any of the court decisions. So it appears to be a game. Whether this changes or not, I can't exactly say, but it it fits within the sort, the sort of way the Russian legal system has been working for the past few years. Lawyers I spoke with weren't surprised at this happening. They told me that what I had found was just a new scheme. They hadn't seen this this scheme of how you would move cases, but none of them were surprised that it's happening. Uh, basically, uh, where where Russia's legal system has essentially become a tool of powerful, wealthy people who use it as a way to get their court cases rubber stamped. And this includes law enforcement agencies who, who want to put somebody away. This includes oligarchs who have connections to law enforcement agencies. And this includes simply just really wealthy people who need something done. Evan, thanks very much for taking the time to be with us in the studio today. Thanks for having me back, Jonathan. And to finish off, the latest and perhaps most brutal attack on the press in Russia yet occurred last week. Recent footage captured in the Sayano-Shoshensky Nature Reserve in Siberia shows a brown bear rubbaging through a ranger's hut deep in the forest. At one point, the bear is seen kneeling over a newspaper and ripping it to shreds. Such is the bear's way, the Nature Reserve quipped on its website. And frankly, I'm sure that we can all sympathize. 
That's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in, and don't forget to rate the podcast on iTunes. It'll help other listeners find us. I'm Jonathan Brown. Our producer today was Piotr Sauer, and thank you to CM Records Studios in Moscow for hosting the show. Join us next week on From Russia with News. (laughs) 